Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, a weekly podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex philosophical, spiritual, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. It is time to talk about touch, I think. As this episode goes out, there is a hysteria about people touching one another. I don't just mean kissing or holding or sex, but even shaking hands, even being within a few feet of somebody. Uh, It's pretty ramped up right now. But we should remember, I think, that touch and the ways that we touch have always been troubled by definitions and rules and the metaphors that we've inherited from others. So I think it is time more than ever to talk about the ways we view touch, the ways we view intimacy, and especially sex, and the way that we think about other people touching and images of it in pornography. So I invited the amazing Kate Lister, a sex historian, uh, to the show. Um, Kate is known, probably best known, for her hugely popular Twitter account, Whores of Yore, which is basically a historical a historical compendium of desires, um, of sexual imagery from the past, drawings, poems, the ways that words have shifted in our culture, all that. Uh, She's really an amazing historian, and she now has an amazing book to match her amazing Twitter account. I just keep saying amazing, but it is true (laughs) about Kate, uh, called A Curious History of Sex. And that book is very, very funny, as is the Twitter account. Uh, So I have followed Kate for a long time, as you hear on this episode, and she's also followed me, and we've always been sort of interested in what each other is doing, but we never got to sit down and talk. So finally, it happened, and we really get into it. We talk about the history of sexual imagery, the ways we touch each other, um, and perhaps most challengingly, challengingly, we talk about what sex is. What is sex? I mean, it's a worthwhile question, and it does not yield an easy answer uh, as much as we think it might. So, uh, and we also talk about what pornography is, which also does not yield an easy answer. We discuss uh, the way we all experience uh, our sexual awakening when we discover sexual imagery. It's actually a part of our lives that we don't really talk about a lot how uh, finding sexual imagery at a certain point of our lives informs us. And it happens to almost all of us in Western culture in one way or another. Um, So Kate talks about her first experience seeing sexual imagery. I talk about mine. We talk about anti-porn activism um, and how that's uh, maybe a rehash of some childish childhood uh, misunderstandings and misconceptions about sex. We talk about how language uh, today can't contain the way we looked at sex in the past. We talk about 28,000-year-old stone dildos. Uh, We talk about the way that wokeness, a certain kind of wokeness, can interfere with seeing sex and power dynamics clearly. we also talk about how we don't really understand our own desires. So this really uh, was a really fun conversation for me. It's the kind of conversation I love to have about sex, and it serves as a kind of uh, pairing with the previous episode all about consent with Catherine Angel. Um, 
One, uh, Catherine's sort of a cultural critic. Uh, Kate certainly is a cultural critic, but she's also a historian of sex and sexuality and sexual imagery. So anyway, I'm very excited to present this uh, conversation to you. This is the part of the intro, as you may know if you listen to the show, uh, where I ask you to support the show on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. This show uh, does not exist without the support of you amazing listeners, of course, and also you amazing patrons. Patreon is a really great way to support any artist that you care about um, because it allows you to contribute as much or as little as you can based on your financial situation and it goes directly to the artist so there's of course patreon is the sort of middle person there and they take a cut it's true but it's a very small cut and it's much better than me getting sponsors uh, from companies that i just don't give a shit about and trying to peddle off prod you know products to you this way, it's just so much more direct. You sign up at patreon.com forward slash Connor Beeb on whatever level that you want, uh, and you directly contribute to the show and my ability to keep doing it. So if you like this episode, if you like some of the other episodes, if you are an awesome person, and I know you are, um, please do contribute. If you've been listening for a really long time and you've never contributed, please consider doing it now. Um, these shows take hours and hours and hours for each episode, um, you know, reading the books of my guests, doing research on the other interviews that they've done so I don't have to, you know, so I don't end up asking the same boring questions that everybody else does, just sitting and thinking about what I'm going to say to this person, traveling to them, you know, having the time where we meet and talk, then taking that conversation, editing it where it needs to be edited, writing the show notes, putting together posts it, paying the platforms that need to be paid, like my distribution platform and SoundCloud and so on and so forth, and then, you know, finally posting it and then promoting it and so on and so forth. <laughs> a lot of so on and so forth. It's a lot of work for every single episode of the show, and uh, I think that that comes through in the show. And that work is only possible through your support, your donation, through Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Connor Beeb. Okay, that's it. It's time to talk about sex. And if I had the rights to that uh, really ridiculous old salt and pepper song, I would cue it right now. But you can hear it in your head now, can't you? Now that I said, let's talk about sex with Kate Lister. Here we go. Hi, everybody. It's Against Everyone with Connor Habib. And finally, finally, I hang out with you, Kate Lister. Hello. Hello. <laughs> um, yeah, it seems like a long time coming for some reason. But it's because we've been following each other on Twitter for for, for years. Like 10, 10 years almost. It, I don't, it's so sad to say that. <laughs> <laughs> You've been on Twitter for 10 years. I think I've been there for like four years, but all of my Twitter career, definitely. And Twitter friends are kind of, yeah, like that they're your friends, but you've not met them most of them and it, it's it's a strange thing so it's it's very lovely to be sat here with you so much nicer than being here with my many twitter enemies <laughs> <laughs> could you even imagine oh god uh i don't think they actually exist i think they're just all bots um 
Okay, so let's just jump right in. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question that actually a lot of people ask you this, but I want to go deeper with it. So, um, and whenever people ask you that, I'm like, come on, let's talk more about it. You um, discovered a porn magazine in a bush. Is this right? <laughs> I did. Okay. Okay, first yes. of all, what was in it? Like, what was in the porn magazine? Do you remember the images? Yes. And then tell me about that experience for a little okay, bit. Okay, so I'll tell you about my experience, then I'll tell you why I think this is like a cultural experience. So um, I was 10 years old and it was two friends of mine who had found a pile of porn magazines in a bush. (coughs) And they came running over with them and was showing them to to, to everybody in the park. And it was the first time that I'd ever seen, not the first time I'd seen somebody nude because I'd seen my, my, my parents nude wandering around, but the first time I'd ever seen a sexually explicit image and I was absolutely transfixed by it it's just it I I can't quite describe for some reason I thought it looked quite angry so it was naked women with like their legs splayed and I remember distinctly thinking that they looked cross and like (laughs) I suppose to a child that's just because that sexy face is like if you don't know that's a sexy face it kind of looks a bit snarly I guess so I remember thinking that I remember thinking that the the vulva looked very cross (laughs) Okay, amazing. Let let me just jump in and say, okay, so I'll I'll tell you about the first sexual imagery I saw, but before that, I remember drawing sexual imagery. I drew a a naked woman, and I took it to my mom, and I said, look, she's screaming because she's naked. It was like she was screaming. I have no idea why she's screaming because she's naked. And my mom was like, "Uh," and she kind of gave me this disappointing look. So because I'd drawn her nipples... um, I changed her naked body into a polka dot dress oh. and I drew a mouse in the corner of the page and I said, she's screaming because she saw a mouse. <laughs> <laughs> so weirdly, like I had some also like impression of like intensity of emotion around being naked. Like yeah. you did too. Yeah. That interpretation of it. God, that's really interesting. Yeah. So I, I remember being quite, I was scared of it and I was fascinated by it. I knew I shouldn't be looking at it, but I didn't really know why. And all of my friends were kind of like laughing hysterically and I just really wanted to look at it. And like they were, and they ended up kind of making fun of me. They were saying that I was like obsessed with it and they're like, oh my God, you love looking at boobies. Like, you know, stuff that 10 year old kids do. But I really did. I just couldn't believe the bodies looked like that. That was, yeah, it was amazing to me. So you owe them an apology for basically being kind upset of with them. They were totally right. Yeah, yes, they were. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, the phenomenon of finding porn magazine in bushes in parks in hedges seems to be extremely widespread i don't know if it's if it's around the world but it's definitely in the uk if it's so many people have similar experiences of finding piles of porn mags outside and although i can find because i've asked this question on twitter i can find hundreds thousands of people who say that they found the magazines i've never found someone who told me they who that they left it they there. They abandoned it, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know why. Mm. So if there's any PhD candidates on the loose, I think that Hedgepon, like looking into it, <laughs> trying to work out what was it, who left it there, I think that's a really uh, viable field of study. Or just bring in the physicist to determine that the lost sock from the dryer actually turns <laughs> into a porn magazine in a bush somewhere <laughs> through some yes. weird laws of physics. Yeah, yeah that could be a possibility. <laughs> well, um, I, see, the reason I want to talk about this, okay, so the first time I saw pornography 
Um, my dad had, uh, it was right after my parents got divorced and my dad had a cable cheater box. Do you know what those are? It's like for, for my younger listeners, um, basically you'd have a box that stole the cable from your neighbors and like everybody could like splice in and steal one person's cable. A lot of times it was through like agreement, you know what I mean? But one of the channels was the porn channel and, uh, channel 27. And at the time, the remote control, this is how old I am, it only went up and down. Like, it was not a number, as far as I remember. And so my dad was, like, flipping through the channels. And you could flip through so quickly that you wouldn't see yeah. what was actually on the screen. And as he went past 27, it was me and my dad and the woman who became my stepmother and my sister all sitting on the couch. And as he flipped past 27, the battery in the remote died. Uh-oh. And just giant, it was a big screen TV. <gasps> so just giant like dick and pussy oh just slamming God. into one another. <gasps> and my sister screamed and covered my eyes. <laughs> and my dad ran up and like changed the channel. But by then, you know, it was, <laughs> it, it. It was already, you know, it was like the record in The Evil Dead. You know, it was already too late. And so <clears throat> I, <laughs> so I was thinking about that moment, like how much is imbued. And like you just said too, of look don't look you know like yeah. don't look at this thing and yet how like everybody was so excited about like yeah. what the fuck was going on you know so it must have been something it must have had some intensity of meaning but also i was being informed not to look don't into look the it. intensity of meaning there yeah yes i mean i think that that, that pretty much sums up pornography doesn't it that's, that's, is everybody exactly. we shouldn't be watching it oh it's terrible to watch and then everybody watches it <laughs> <laughs> isn't this porn so awful just isn't terrible. just the way they're having sex and oh just the way they're kissing each other and <laughs> just jizzing all over the place and now licking each other's feet it's awful yeah like <laughs> but but also i just think like that moment to me that you have recounted in other interviews i listened to with you it's such a it's such an interesting moment because we forget that discovering the discovery of sexual imagery is actually uh, constitutive of being a person in Western culture. Mm. We all discover sexual imagery at some point, kind of unbidden. We have this idea that our parents set us down and that's the only way, but actually also part of it is the awakening of our consciousness when we first see. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think that like, the education that, that I got from my parents was kind of this, the, almost the same as the dad that I got from school. It was very functional. I mean, it was very biological. It was the sperms and eggs and erect penises and babies. That was kind of it. It wasn't... So, like, looking at this porn mag, it was like, I, I, I don't think she's trying to make a baby. It was, just, it was like a whole other side of sex that, that you're not told about. So it's... Yeah, I remember distinctly being almost scared by it and quite transfixed. Mm. Yeah, and and that that's so interesting too. Like the trying to figure out what's going on before you know. Yeah, because I remember then, like as I got a little older, I didn't watch porn for a little bit after that. But then, as I got a little older, I'd watch more. And like my sister, who is also very young, she's just three years older than me. Like we watched it together a few Mm. times. And I had no idea what cum was, right? So, like, the guys were, like, coming, and I was like, what is that? And my sister's like, I think it's, like, foamy pee. (laughs) And I was like, foamy pee, like, okay, like, and it's white. So then, anyway, like, around that time, I peed, and, like, you know, when you pee, it's clear sometimes. It's not, you know. But because I was a kid, I went to my mom and I said, totally unrelated from the porn stuff, I was like, what does it mean when you pee and it's white? Meaning, like it was clear and she was like like milky white you know because she was like what's going yes. on with your body 
And in my head, I was like, oh my gosh. And I went back to my sister. I was like, it is pee. (laughs) (laughs) That's so, yes. Uh, I I think that everyone kind of has that experience because you're trying as a child to make sense of it. And it doesn't make sense because no one's told you about this. So you're trying to, like people might have told you about sex, but but sex for pleasure and sex for fun and porn, it's not part, it is part of the same conversation. But to you as a child trying to make sense of that, it doesn't. And I, I mean, the first time that I saw a porn video, going back now, but videos, um, and it, oh, it must have been about 13, 14. And again, I thought they were really angry. I thought, I just, I, I, and it kind of, you know, now I know that they were having fun and it was, you know, enthusiastic grunting. But like just to watch it for the first time, like they're swearing, you know, like like they might be calling each other names in the heat of the moment. There's a lot of kind of crashing and banging. And it's just, God, wow, he's, he's, he's trying to hurt that person, you know, and like trying to, it just seems so aggressive. Yeah, but that's interesting because then what you're revealing is that this sort of anti-porn um, activism that, is like constantly calling stuff like rape porn or violent porn or whatever is actually like just a re-expression of the child, uh, the childish understanding of what's happening. Like I, yeah. they're trying to hurt each other. They're hurting each other. They're hurting each other. It's like no, they're performing aggression, which is not the same. It's not the thing. same thing. Yeah. It's not exactly. And it was, I don't know. It wasn't that I thought that one of them wasn't willing. It was just, it was just that everyone seemed to be shouting a lot. <laughs> And, you know, and like when I was like the only thing that you would swear about when I was 13 was like, you know, oh, I've fallen over or I've stubbed my toe or, you know, someone's stolen my gel pens. So it's like to see that it's like you think they must be really, really cross with one another. Um, But yeah, that's I think I think that that's a really interesting parallel, because I think the idea that all porn is rape or all sex work is rape is very naive. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's got the same childlike innocence but right no uh, no right right, but i I think that it is that same naivety yeah there's like a dislodging it's like it's almost like a personally anachronistic take yeah you know yeah Yeah, it's that you don't fully understand what's going on so you are trying to explain it with very limited tools right yeah so okay it's also interesting so i want to then jump to you know, I'm thinking about <clears throat> finding dildos that are made out of antlers that are like 8,000 years old or stone that are 28,000 yeah. years old, right? And so I was thinking about like these tools for sexual pleasure that were made probably before people understood that sex was actually procreative. So in other words, like before, because we don't, like as kids, we don't understand, you know, that it's procreative mm. necessarily. So unless we're distinctly instructed on how the science works which we can see people really didn't know for a long time Mm. and like you write about this a bit in your book um then like it may be that we can understand a little bit more how people might have experienced sex as pleasure without necessarily linking it up to this is how babies are made i'm not sure i'd need to do the research on it but i'm not sure if there's ever been a period where they didn't understand that having sex could result in babies. I think that that, that will have been apparent, I think, sort of like culturally, although it's really interesting that, that you're suggesting that, that it might not be. That That's fascinating. But I, I think that like 
when you look back through history and through various different cultures, people are attaching different meaning and significance to having sex all of the time. Right. Like, I think, so part of that comment is coming from, I forget the researcher's name, I'll put it in the show notes, but at the British Museum, who had suggested that when she was discussing um, ancient dildos, basically. (laughs) But I was also just thinking, like, if we look into Western history and we see, like, those images of, like, the tiny person inside the sperm. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like, it was like, yes. The, you know, like, oh, you just like shoot the tiny yeah. person in, into the egg and then yes. it grows, you know? Um, so we obviously had wrong ideas about how it works. So yes. I'm thinking like there might've been just a kind of correlative notion. Like we do this thing and it's kind of like, I don't know, like a, 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 a synchron like a synchronistic act of worship or like a kind of summoning of mm. a child or something like that and also by the way i'm not saying that those understandings are necessarily even wrong like maybe mm. that understanding those understandings could reveal something to us so i'm not saying those were so stupid and ours are so smart you know but i'm wondering if there's a different kind of just sort of valence around the whole act do you know yeah um it's it's with studying sex history this is one of the most difficult things about it is because we don't have surviving first hand accounts all we've got left is things to try and interpret with so you're sat there looking at a penis that's been carved from a bison horn and is <laughs> like 28,000 years old and you're just thinking what is this thing like is it a sex toy was it a devotional object was it a lucky charm was it a joke was it funny did they did they laugh at these things and you just don't know so trying all the time to understand the context that people had sex in and it will have been so vastly different and the thing that people are always doing is we're dragging our own prejudices with us and trying to read the past in context of how we view morality and sex today and that often trips us up and often scuppers us and it means that we don't see things um but sex will have been vastly different. I mean, there's there's evidence that it was devotional uh, in early cultures or viewed as holy, sacred, and you still have examples of that all around the world today. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's <laughs> there's so much there, right? So first of all, there's the presentism piece, right? That was like a Foucault thing, yeah. constantly arguing like you can't judge. But also, just structures of consciousness seem to be legitimately different from civilization to civilization, person to person, over time, all that kinds of stuff. Like if you sort of look anthropologically at things, the the way that we form pictures and concepts of reality are just Mm. very different you know so sex is bound to be completely different you know in these different contexts so it's very hard to not just sort of overlay and I'll I'll give you one example of an area of study that is is it's very difficult to unpick it from our own modern preconceptions and that's the the area of of so-called sacred prostitution or Mm. temple prostitution um that is it's extremely difficult to go back to the ancient sources and try and work out. So um, there is evidence that in some of the ancient temples uh, or the priestesses for various uh, deities might have sold sex and that, that some historians have looked at that and said that, that was sacred, quote, prostitution. And then other scholars have come in and tried to unpick it. And it's all about translations of words from ancient Babylon uh, and it's like well what did that word mean to the ancient Babylonians and we have no way of knowing but not many people are actually breaking down if you call that 
temple prostitution in inverted commas. And if you're looking for everything that we drag with that word prostitute, which is an incredibly stigmatized, densely layered word, I don't think that you're ever going to find that in the in ancient Babylonia because their idea, our idea of what a prostitute is, may it may not have had any relevance to them whatsoever. So even like just the language that we use can really um, trip us up as historians because if you're going back to ancient Babylonian sources and trying to find a quote-unquote prostitute, you're already dragging with you stigma, you see. And like maybe there were people having sex in the temples. Maybe it was devotional. Maybe they didn't have shame around it. And can you even apply the word prostitute, which is modern and stigmatized to what was going on? You know, so it's it's always like things are lost in translation that we're, we're bringing our own prejudices with us all the time and maybe trying to find things that didn't actually exist in history. Yeah, and even, even words were probably yep. different. So it's not even just like the the content of the words or the understanding of the word, but actually uttering a word itself, speech itself might have had its own implications yeah. and its own, you know, I mean, because we can look at, you know, poetry or sort of sacred kinds of summoning spells and all these yeah. kinds of things. And we can understand that words begin to have different meanings. I mean, even if you just look at the Bible and saying like, don't take the Lord's name in vain or the logos or whatever we would yeah. think, whoa, the word itself has a different kind of uh, experiential dimension to it. So even down at that level, it's not just like, <laughs> it's like there's this level that you're bringing up, which is so deep and expansive on its mm -hmm. own, right? And then it's even like, well, even <laughs> even if they did use the same words, like it, it, the, the uttering of a word could be different. Could be completely different. Yeah. It, and that's... you with, Trying to understand how people understood sex through through words, through culture, is it? This is so problematic. And trying to, like, one of the things, for example, um, like in in Pompeii, in the ancient. Oh, Roman I was going to bring up Pompeii. Oh, yeah. it's fabulous! Yeah, it's amazing. It's yeah. But there are dicks all over that city, right? <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're carved on the the floor. They're carved in walls. They are absolutely mug handles. Yes, mug everywhere. Yeah. And one of the, like people are always kind of asking the question, why, 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 why? And it's, we're never going to get the answer because there's not someone from Pompeii here to tell us, right? But it's kind of that's more testament to our own culture that it's so bizarre to us that you would have dicks on the floor. It's so, we cannot get our heads around it. It seems like there must be some incredibly profound reason or something really bawdy or smutty or something. We just cannot conceive of it. And that's kind of, that's the disconnect is for the people in Pompeii, this was evidently completely normal because there are penises everywhere. If it wasn't normal and part of their culture, they wouldn't be there. But it's our struggle to understand that and read that within modern terms. Oh, they must have been really sexually um, voracious or they must have just like a city of perverts or something like that. We cannot conceive of the fact that perhaps a dick on the floor was a good look symbol, that it wouldn't have been offensive. And the, if you go to Pompeii, you can look around the ruins of uh, what were once family homes. So you can go to the brothels, and everyone likes to go to the brothels. But if you go to the family homes, there's also erotic frescoes on the walls depicting really explicit sex acts. And again, to us, that's insane. Like, just having porn on the wall where you'd be having dinner with your family is just, we can't see that. So that's kind of like, how did these people view sex? It's so shocking to us. We have to try and push past that. And it wasn't shocking to them. It can't have been. You know, but if but to us, because you imagine like having having dinner with your family, just everyone round, and there's just a massive dick on the wall. <laughs> Sounds great to me. 
Um, but, <laughs> but no, but I mean, and that's also, if you remember like last year, there was this image circulating. So in Pompeii, for people who don't know, that's the civilization that was also wiped out by a volcano eruption. So that's why everything was so preserved. And we found all these preserved bodies, you know, and, and so forth. And there was that image last year that was going around of like, a guy who was masturbating like his final moment was like he was on the ground in Pompeii and just like preserved in ash like grabbing his own dick yeah and people were like ha 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 this is like priorities bro and I was like this could actually be an act of worship like if you see how important penises are like in this culture yeah. and the presence of sex and sexuality this was probably like a prayer almost you know if you want to you know, if you want to fill in the blanks with something, it's probably less likely to be priorities, bro, and more about, like, you know, engaging in something that was deeply meaningful, you know? I mean, it's, again, we need to be careful that we're not bringing our own prejudices, but just from, like, a human experience, I don't think you'd prioritize having a wank when a volcano <laughs> is, you know, it's like, I, I'm, I'm going to put myself out there and say that culturally, universally, that's probably, you wouldn't think, Jesus, it's getting a bit hot around here, but I need to finish this. You would, so like, it, I think that it does have other meanings. And like, and if you are absolutely cornered, as those poor buggers in Pompeii were, then maybe, yeah, like maybe it was devotional or maybe it was just because, do you know what? Holding your genitals is comforting. It's right. like we, we get yeah. trained not to do that, like at a very young age. But if you've ever been around young children, you see them holding on to their genitals and, and you know, they don't even know what sex is, but that feels good. Mm -hmm. And some, and there's been scans we've seen that that babies masturbate in the womb, in the womb yeah. right? So yeah. maybe, maybe it was that it was a comforting thing. Maybe it was a devotional thing. Yeah. <clears throat> well, so on Pompeii, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, so that's such a fascinating moment for me because that's where people, well, some historians will like, like to say that that's where we can start talking about what pornography is, not mm. in the um, Dixon, you know, the satyr fucking the goat and all the stuff that they found there, but actually when it was rediscovered in the 18th, 18th century, I think. Yeah. Um, because y you have all these people who are total prudes yet completely respect classical culture. So then they like find these ruins and they're like horrified because it's devastated. Just, yes, exactly. Sex everywhere. And so they're like, well, we can't, this is part of antiquity, right? Like we can't destroy these artifacts. So let's put them in uh, a museum. So I think it's Walter Kendrick, right? With this book, the secret museum where it's like, that's where he says pornography came from. It's like you, the modern conception where everything, all these sexual images were just kind of hidden away mm -hmm. and you had to get access. And of course the people that got access most readily were like, you know, like Rich powerful yeah. men. Yeah. And then you could study it, you know, mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, but it was in that turn, that hiding away that um, pornography. Now I'm not, I think there's a lot more to what pornography is, but as far as definitions go, he says something like pornography isn't, argument not a thing you know or yeah. it's, a, it's a way of viewing you know and I still think that that definition is incomplete but I like that mm -hmm. concept of you know back to what we were saying like look don't look you know yeah yeah I mean it's yeah absolutely and that that's fascinating isn't it is that they were so gutted that they'd put <laughs> the ancient world on such a pedestal as being this absolute bastion of moral super and cultural superiority and then they were so sexually repressed and upset they just could not put the two things together is these people that they revered and all of these dicks that they found <laughs> everywhere. But I think that that's, I mean, I'd probably say that I think 
pornography has a much earlier start than that. But I think like the idea of porn being something that you enjoy in secret or hide or it's something illicit, that's a really interesting thing to to like when does the erotic fresco of the the people shagging when does that stop being a drawing and start becoming porn is that something is that in the viewer themselves right is it in the use i mean yeah i mean i think that there is a worthwhile argument to be made in the fact that pornography is a way of viewing in the sense that before i really had regular access to porn like the macy's catalog with the guy's underwear section was my pornography right i transformed that and i think that reveals something really intense, which anti-porn <laughs> activists will never be able to contend with, which is that actually the imagination is pornographic. Like, you know, yes. I walk around and I turn things into pornography as I see, you know, people, places, things, you yeah. know, like if you're an objectum sexual, it could be a roller coaster, you know. So it's like whatever it is that you might find yourself drawn to. And so there's no way to and pornography because it's actually no. part of the structure of our imaginative life. Yeah, I think that all, that's also looking at it through the wrong end of the lens is pornography has not arrived as some evil um, entity to try and upset people. It's there because of that's we demand it, we need it, we want it. It's it, We've produced it, right? So it's, it, it's meeting a need within us and human beings are very sexual. And like you said, we will turn almost anything sexual given a chance you could ban all pornography and you won't stop sex of course you won't you won't stop people fantasizing about sex and imagining sex and all those things so yeah that completely stands it's something that's really um potent about your book because you know a lot of what you do is actually just present pornography right because we yep. don't view pornography for what it is which is in a lot of ways an archive of desire right yes. like it's a, the the totality of pornography is an archive so it's like what we're doing now is massive archival work <laughs> so like the you know the proliferation of pornography it's like actually this is giving us a lot to like study and understand and like the externalization of the psyche and the desire and the longings and all that into these images it's really like establishing something that's never been established before which is just a greater archive you know yeah absolutely um and when you look and it's funny the way that people feel far more comfortable looking at images of porn from the 19th century because they're black and white and they're kind of old timey and then it, then it has like a different narrative yeah. around it you know then, then it becomes erotica it's not it's not porn you know it has to be in black and white and give it 100 years and then people have different yeah they're viewing it again differently aren't they is that at one time that would have been absolutely obscene it was banned you could face a jail sentence for producing that fast forward 200 years and people are looking at it as a kind of historical mm. record and they're looking at exactly the same sex act that you can see on Pornhub but through very very different eyes and I think the thing that I love about looking at the early photography early porn is that you could, you really get a sense that it hasn't been stylized yet mm. so now photography is so stylized and pornography is probably the same you know if, if, if you want to take a sexy selfie we kind of all know the drill right is you know the the, the pouty face the Instagram face and all that stuff but in the early images, you really get a sense that they haven't worked out what looks <laughs> sexy yet. Because it's it's one thing to, to like to shag and have a good time. It's another thing to make that look good in a, in an image. Mm. So there's 
they're, they're smiling a lot. They look like they're laughing. Um, they bring in props sometimes. So like there's taxidermy shows up, like a little taxidermy dog in one or like bicycles or brooms and there's it's like a real sense that they're in there going does this work i don't know yeah it's kind of like because you it was like going to get the family photo taken where it's like do you want the autumn background and like we'll put some you know beach grass in the front or whatever yeah yeah it's like what looks sexy you know it's like ethel try standing on the chair see if that'll work (laughs) let's bring in the taxidermy dog see if that helps anything yeah, I mean, it's really, it's really an interesting. So, like, <laughs> part of the challenge of your work, I'm, I'm wondering what direction this will go in as I'm asking it. But uh, part of the challenge of your work is that what you're saying is like, look, this, this really is meaningful to us. This is a meaningful aspect of culture. It's not just, I mean, it's something I try to say all the time. It's like, this is pornography is not an issue. Like, it's a, it has a meaningful presence in the world, and like, very obviously so because it's existed fucking forever, yes. right? So, but you know, like that. On top of like, there's a kind of idea now that in our conversations about consent, which will go in other directions with that later, I hope. But like. That like consent to see and consent to touch are kind of wrapped up in each other right now. So yeah. like there's this whole like idea about, you know, unsolicited dick pics and how those can be like really, you know, like how dare you like violate me by sending me out. Now, I think that some people actually do feel genuinely violated when mm. they see a dick pic. Although I've talked to my friend <laughs> about this quite a bit and she, I, w- I was like, wouldn't it be so weird like. Also, if I just sent you a picture of my eyeball, like you'd be freaked out if a stranger sent you a picture of their eye, probably more like if you were just talking to someone and like a picture of their eye like popped up in your text. Right. So the dick thing is like it brings this whole different baggage. But why I'm bringing all that up is that there's a way in which like to enter into this study in some ways you're yes, there's a kind of blanket consent idea like, well, I'm deciding to enter into engagement with sexual imagery. And yet. On the other hand, it's like there are just dick pics everywhere that you didn't ask for as you're going into the archives. So I guess part of my question then is like, you have something in you that that doesn't bother you. And Mm. I want to know what that is. Because I think we should not just be talking about what violates us and what hurts us. That's really important to have that conversation. But also what makes us resilient. Also what makes us able to just sort of be like, I'm just going to look at all this and I'm going to be okay. Um, maybe that can lend something to people. I don't know. I think <clears throat> I'm endlessly fascinated by dick pics. Please don't send them me anymore. Anyone is listening. Like, so you can send them to me. If you get the Connor, urge they- <laughs> to send them to Kate, just write to my DMs. Please. I, I get a lot of them. Um, and I, I, I find myself that I'm... I, I, I swing between being angry about it and really confused about it and I think that the anger comes from so if I'm scrolling through Twitter and there's randomly a dick there is I feel resilient to that because I've made the choice to go on Twitter the dick happens to be there I found it I kind of feel like I have more agency in that whereas if one person has made the decision to photograph their genitals and send it very specifically to me without my asking for it because getting a picture of a dick is lovely if you're really into it and you know and you've got something going with someone but to just randomly send somebody a picture of your genitals 
it's just a strange act and like like sending someone a picture of the eye or the elbow or anything it's equally weird but it's it, it you're not giving the person a choice whether or not they see it i suppose and i think that that's kind of where it comes from i mean i'm i'm fascinated by it as well of like what was the thought process that led up to that like what was wrong with hi or hello like <laughs> right. what what is it that you're thinking mm. i'm going to think when i receive this and culturally though like why isn't that high now too like that's that's the other question like why is that um why is that the difficult way to say hello like we can't do we can't do that and again i'm not look like these questions are very tricky because it can make it sound like I'm advocating for like not respecting people's boundaries or what they say they want or what they don't want. I'm not saying that at all, but I do want to interrogate these questions where obviously, you know, if we're talking about Pompeii and you have dicks on Mm. the kitchen table and it's not bothering anybody and probably dicks like actual dicks just out all the time too. Let's not like, you know, pretend it's just sculpture. You know what I mean? Like, you know, and yet now there's a different kind of construction about what seeing means. And that that is a very curious question to me, how that happened or what, mm. wh- how that became so. So, sorry, let me tell you one more story about yeah, this. So, um, there was an anthropologist and um, <clears throat> she was investigating the Dayak tribe is that right in Borneo yeah in Borneo you know this story okay great so you know and uh, tribe is probably the wrong word but anyway you so you know the story but I'll say it for the listeners where she saw a a group of women Dayak women like standing around and kind of laughing about something and she walked over and she said what's so funny you know basically and they were like oh so-and-so was in a room last night and a man snuck in but to her window but she shoot him out with a broom and the anthropologist was like oh well weren't you afraid he was going to rape you and they didn't know what rape was so she had to explain because they didn't have a word for it and then they started laughing again and one of them said how could anybody ever hurt you with a penis right so we know that the construction of forms of damage or fear or whatever are embedded into certain cultural narratives that doesn't make them less real less pressing less violating less important right but I'm interested in how those turns happened, either historically or what we're doing with them presently, how we view them, you know, what's eroding, what's emerging, that kind of stuff. I mean, I th- I'm pretty sure that the Dayak people in Borneo are one of the few matriarchal societies mm. in the world. Um, so they have very different views on sex, on gender, and the m- men there have very different roles. I don't think that that was saying that sexual violence didn't exist, but it's very interesting to see the context that all of this exists in because trying to understand what we quantify as an assault or a front, I think that it's it's very much about intent, content, and then receiving, isn't it? It's because if, if you've sent me a picture of your penis, that to me is... I mean, does it matter that the sender thought that that was a nice thing to do? You know, like, how much of that do we take into account here? Because it feels like, why, yeah, it feels like a violation because I haven't consented to that. Mm -hmm. I mean, attitudes to sex and consent and boundaries do change all over the world and all throughout history. So, I mean, almost every, well, every culture on throughout history has recognized that 
rape and sexual violence are wrong, but what they quantify as that <laughs> right. very right. intensely. So, like, rape was punishable by, by death in ancient Rome, but it didn't count if it was a slave because they didn't have, they weren't proper people. That kind of thing. Right. And in the 1960s, up till the 1960s in the US, a man could rape his, rape wife, his wife. Right. Yeah. And, <clears throat> and then, of course, like, you know, you, you as a Columbus era, you know, uh, pilgrim or whatever you want to call it like they could rape native people because native people weren't seen as being able to have consent or white women in the u.s were always raped by the african-american men Mm. they had sex with according to the law because no white woman could possibly ever want to have sex with a black man that was the idea and that was an excuse to carry as as, the reason why i know about these things is like i investigated them as a sex worker because right as i started doing sex work i was suddenly being bombarded by people that were telling me that i didn't consent to what i was doing and so i was like whoa like maybe this picture of consent is much trickier than i'm being told you know Mm. or 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 maybe then i thought of it as like maybe there's something else going on here and so i mean i i just talked to Catherine angel about this on the show and i recorded an episode with her you don't really get to consent to the consent you're given or the consent structure you're given Mm. so what do you do then about that when you want to interrogate it because it's seen as inviolable in some ways you know and and sometimes it has to be interrogated you know i mean as a sex worker for me it certainly had to be but it's really important that that we do ask these questions and and break them down and kind of make sure that everyone knows that like at no point are we saying that you know consent doesn't exist or you know challenging the idea of what violation or rape is but trying to understand what consent means for one person especially when it's somebody else assuming the consent of another person so i see that a lot of time in in sex worker narratives as well as people saying that they've got some kind of false consciousness or that it's always paid rape and that's a really worrying dialogue because the the sex workers themselves are disputing that and saying that I do consent. And that that is particularly problematic is when you are defining cons- consent for somebody else. Mm-hmm. And that's that's got implications for, for everybody. And it's always about sort of ignoring, I think, in some ways where the structure of consent doesn't lie, right? So, like, I mean, a lot of sex workers who are doing labor rights activism, I think have great critiques of this where it's like, look, the wage labor relationship is not consensual. So like, why don't we talk about that? Because we can't like what I do to strategize, to contend with that non-consensual wage labor relationship is where my consent lies. I can't get outside of that, you know? So we need to critique that. Why the fuck are you not talking about that? Why are you talking about what I do with my, with my life? You know, that sex work is, is scrutinized in ways that other work is not and when you actually make the comparisons you realize that it is being held up unfairly compared to other other employment so people that say sex work is paid rape right the idea that the act of paying somebody or receiving money negates consent and that it automatically becomes abuse i've heard that leveled at sex work so many times and this idea that it's exploitative but that you can say that about any job your consent is being bought Right. The guy who made my coffee this morning in a coffee shop it was his consent was bought. The person that cut my hair, their consent was bought. They're not doing it because it's fun. My job and that I go to work, I love it, but I wouldn't go if I wasn't paid. We're all being paid. That's capitalism. But people focus on sex workers that that's somehow exempt from this. We're all paying with something. We're all selling something. That's the system that we're in. Yeah, I think it's particularly pernicious when 
um, aimed at sex workers because I think sex work is actually one of the forms of, you know, strategizing around that non-consensual wage labor relationship that actually has the best chance of eroding it in a lot of ways. Mm. It's like, there are a lot of strategies that sex workers like, I'm not going to have a boss. Fuck you. You know, sometimes sex workers have bosses, but yes. I'm not going to have a boss. Um, I'm going to make my own hours. I'm going to decide actually when I go to work, I'm going to be the arbiter of what I do and don't yeah. do in that situation. Like, and it's a there and va- another just a whole host of other things you know for men who are making porn for example like the idea that they be providers for their families or whatever they might still be doing that but there's kind of a bucking of that mm. for straight men that are doing it and of course for women who are doing it you know there's at least a display if not an internal acceptance of like well i'm allowed to express and uh, express and experience my desires rather than like, you know, (laughs) do what you're telling me to do in this economy, you know? So I think there are all these ways in which sex work can kind of erode that. So that's even more pernicious when you, (laughs) (laughs) when you lay that at sex workers than other, than other kinds of jobs. It is. And if you look all throughout history, the role of the sex worker, of the courtesan, of it's, it's, it was then it's the same as now. So it was mostly women, um, performing it, but not entirely. Men were selling sex as well. But that is the result of an economic system that excludes women from it. That's capitalism. That's patriarchy. And throughout history, where the men have got the power and women are very much enthralled to men in, this, in the sense that, that they need to get married to have a protector to, and they can't earn their own money in many cases. And when they get married, their money goes to their father, uh, sorry, to their husband, or they can inherit it. Sex work genuinely all throughout history offered people financial independence, a way to exist outside of the system, and a way, uh, yeah, and a way to book the trend. And that's not true of everyone. Of course it's not. Survival sex work comes into it and all the rest of it. It's a very complex experience. But I've often wondered how much of the stigma and the anger towards sex work is like almost a result of capitalism. You know, like they found a shortcut somehow, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, right. It found a Found a way to attack capitalism by doing something that's still you know, that still sort of hustles it, basically. Yeah. It's like hustling capitalism yeah. itself. I mean, all the courtesan, the figure of the courtesan, these, these women all throughout uh, Western history have been extraordinarily powerful figures. And there is no other role or occupation where a woman born in poverty could have raised up to the social ranks and gained that kind of power. Like uh, Nell Gwynn, who was born uh, in the uh, 17th century, and she was born in London in absolute poverty, and she was um, an orange girl in the theatre selling oranges, and she became mistress and an actress, and she ended up being mistress to Charles II and one of the most powerful and wealthy women in the entire country. So what other role... (laughs) could possibly have afforded a working-class girl from the London slums that. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who's engaged in sex work is going to be a Nell Gwynn, that it's a, right. that'd be a ridiculous... And we need to be careful that we're not pushing what they like to call the happy hooker mm-hmm. myth. But the simple fact remains is that selling sex um, offered people a way to, to gain enormous power, influence, and wealth that wasn't allowed by anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also you would see women who, you know, like they had more rights and more freedom outside of marriage as sex workers yes, than they, they would if they would have gotten married, right? Yes. And I'm glad you're bringing up <clears throat> some of the religious stuff because I think that ties back into the consent, you know, um, the ways that 
consent is framed because I think it's in this. Do you know this book, um, The Origins of Sex by mm. it's Oxford University Press, right? But I forget the the author's name. It'll be in the show notes, and I'm sorry to the <laughs> author for forgetting. Um, but the you know there's a great long section on um, religious toleration in the 17th and 18th century where like the church was kind of like oh fuck like we're, we're <laughs> like we're having some problems now with like power and like some of it's like eroding a bit so we're actually going to say to people you know what like do whatever you want sexually in your own lives and the, the, but there was an idea like you have so much more freedom now but it was like within these guidelines that yeah. we've given to you. So like as long as you don't sort of hit the borders that we've presented. So that's another way of like people and institutions in power framing consent to make people feel like actually they're free to consent the ways that they want to. Yeah. But it's within certain boundaries. I'm thinking also just of like college code of, uh college code of conduct manuals that have stuff about how to engage sexually and it's yeah. like that's to usually, I mean, I'm sure they're useful for some people in some cases, but a, a lot of it's just so the school can demarcate where they can't be sued, you know? Yes, unfortunately. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say that we should do away with it because I also think that, that <laughs> right, right, you right. know, like the people, the education around consent and sex, is it something that absolutely needs to happen? But yeah, I do worry that in a lot of these cases, it's exactly, you know, it's, it's like, when when I started my job, I had to sit through. I think it was like four hours of a computer based uh, quiz on health and safety. I just sit there from my compu- front of my computer, going, "No, I wouldn't pick up the really heavy box without bending my knees." And that's not really for my benefit. It's so if I ever do it, then they won't sue me. <laughs> then I can't sue them for hurting myself. But that's kind of it's really interesting that that's where we are with consent. That they would lie out rules like that. It's it's. It's scary in the sense that, like, I don't know, how, how should I say it? It's like, there's always a third present when you're having sex. It, you're always having a threesome, whether you realize it or not, because there's the determining structure of the consent in that situation that you're in, yeah. whether it's the college or the religious, whatever, or the cultural, whatever. And it's like, do we consent to have a menage a trois with the people that have outlined, like, the contours of what we're supposed to do? It's something that I learned from porn which was so valuable was like, well, actually the arbiter of consent, the structure of consent was actually sitting in the room. It was the mm. director. So, okay, yes, I could say yes or no. And I had my own sort of structure of consent that I brought, but I was being asked to do acts that were very uncomfortable for eight hours long with mm. somebody, you know, like for studio porn to last eight hours to like, you know, be on a fucking motorcycle, not a moving one, but like, or hanging upside down from a tree or like all yeah. these ridiculous things I did that were very uncomfortable, that were not chosen by me, that were arranged, that were with very often a person I wasn't attracted to. And so it's all being kind of like orchestrated. And so it was like, wow, like I can actually see the third person in the room this time. And that's so much healthier when I can see it and I can engage with it. So what I'm not saying, I hope is obvious, is that we should do away with consent. It's one of the best tools that we have for navigating sexual experiences but rather that we bring to light who that extra talk person it. is you know and see it because that brings a healthier experience to us yeah exactly whose consent is it yeah exactly um i i gave a talk at um a, a festival that that, that that i won't name um <laughs> a year ago and it's like it's super sex positive and body positive and it's kind of if you're being mean, you'd say that it was super woke. And like, I went and I had a lovely time and I was doing a talk there and they gave us 
guidelines on what we could and couldn't do. So I guess in one way that's completely fair and responsible of them. But it goes into things like like what is consent. And it was basically saying that if you're giving a talk, you can't have sex with anybody there because there's a power dynamic. And then it was also saying things like be aware of um, basically how attractive you are because if you are considered conventionally attractive, you have a power dynamic over somebody that is not. And I'm just reading this thinking, oh, my God, I didn't even think of that. Like, that's something that is, is that true? And then but then I'm thinking, like, you know, how far do you want to take this? And I'm sat there imagining is like, do I have to sit there and go, how good looking do you think you are? How good looking do you think I am? Should we rate each other on a scale of one to ten? Right. And if you're above me, then I can't fuck you and you can't fuck me. We're just going to try and fuck people who are of equal attractiveness. Right. And like, you know, like at, at what point? At what point do you like, you know, the idea that there's a power dynamic if you're giving a talk that you have more power? And I, I guess I can see that. Is that parent, that sort of child uh, teacher student dynamic? But then again, I just fuck lecturers. I just like, do you know what I mean? <laughs> or like when they talk about like rock stars and groupies, that there's the huge power dynamic there is, yeah, I can, I can see what they're talking about. But then also, do rock stars just fuck? rock stars and also is there a power dynamic with so like the rock star themselves they're they are in a way being used for sex by people who just want to have sex with them because they are a rock star well think think of courtney love jumping into the audience right and having people like people grope grope and grab and and fingering her without you know and like i anyway she would continue to do it you know like for whatever reason, maybe in defiance, maybe, you know, whatever. Yeah. I had the drummer of Hole on the show and we talked about that those moments a bit once, but she, like, that is, like, the perfect example of, like, well, that relationship is maybe not, like, the power dynamic is not in the way that you see it being there. But this is, this this thing that you're talking about, it's, like, it, it really brings to light issues of, like, what people call lookism or whatever, where it's, like, you might think that I'm really attractive. I walk around all the time thinking I'm fat, disgusting, ugly, you know, whatever. You're like, not, but I know exactly what, what... Do you know what I mean? Like, how do you, how do you even... Sometimes you, I feel like I look good, but like... How do you rate your own attractiveness? Totally. There'd be no way to do it. I mean, you could maybe say that there are certain kinds of body types that are obviously conferred a kind of, you know, economic privilege. But even that is difficult, you know, to sort of map out. Yeah. It's, and it was just really like just seeing like it, it kind of listed like that. And it was just and I was like, at what point does this kind of tip over into paternalistic control mm-hmm. over who you and if you have sex with this person, then you've done something wrong. Right. Quote unquote wrong because you've exploited a power dynamic. And it was just like, <laughs> I don't know how you navigate that. And also, like, if I were going to have sex with someone who is somehow quantitatively uglier than me, like, are they not supposed to have sex with anybody that is good looking? Like, that's such a bizarre thing to Isn't say. It? Like, like, I'm really attracted to, like, chubby guys, for example. So societally, the standard is, like, that I, like, I shouldn't have sex with them, quote unquote, right? But of course, I'm very attracted to them. So, like... That, that what are we not supposed to have sex at all like right. that's bizarre yeah it's like we yeah. just everyone just fucks across like you can't <laughs> no one fucks up no one fucks down is we just and it was just yeah so like it, of course the issues around consent is so important that we interrogate it but there are like these kind of things mm. cropping up that it's like how far are we going to take this and what happens if we do you know it's a misunderstanding of what power dynamics are i think um and like uh, the 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 difficulty of not navigating them is like it does try to turn it into a quantitative uh 
exchange thing. I mean, it was the same thing with like enthusiastic consent, which was, I thought just this is like the worst concept ever. Cause if you're fucking a sex worker, too bad that's out the window mm. then you really are being raped all the time right because you're I having sex with people that, like but yeah that, that's interesting or even that's just like true. as a queer kid it's like you grow up like with the entire culture telling you that it's like horrible mm. so it's like okay well i felt bad before i had sex with this person because i'm not supposed to be gay i felt bad during sex with this person because i'm not supposed to be gay i felt bad after sex with mm. this person because i'm not supposed to be gay you know it's like that's just not available you know to people in this fantasy way so it's like what you're describing at this conference or whatever it was is like i want to find my sexual partner by looking in the mirror and there not being any difference like that is yeah. that's a that's a problem first of all because it's impossible i mean i if i had a twin i would love to have sex with my <laughs> but I, <laughs> but no but like it's impossible you know to like find that kind of match but also like a reflection it's a two-dimensional idea you know and who's deciding that who's deciding where the power lays you know lies it, it's i don't think that subjectively you can work that out for all the reasons that you just said and it you know you'd have to think of yourself as being what if like you thought you you were too attractive what if you were one of those people walking around thinking that like they're you know god's gift and they you know where does that put to where does that put these people right what about all those like douchey straight dudes who think they're so hot but like they just don't wash their asses and oh, like God. they've got crumbs on their shirt all the time or the, the ones that just spray deodorant on the junk uh, yes. yeah not hey not to um axe body spray shame anybody but just you know wash it just wash it <laughs> just, just just, just wash it unless your partner says don't wash it wash it right right um <laughs> so okay i was thinking like i want to just jump back to pornography a little before we before i talk about the the next thing because um one of the things that you bring up in your book which i just really want more people to talk about and investigate more and it's so great that it's in your book is a way that porn can be positioned against people and in institutions in power right so like for instance, you know, like, uh, I don't think this is in your book, but the way in the, um, God, what sent, I, I get my centuries wrong. So you so can correct me, but like, uh, is like, uh, oh, 17th and 18th century. So like King Charles II and James II mm. and then Marie Antoinette, people would write all these like sex pamphlets and poems about them and do drawings. And it was to sort of be like, look, you're like us. This is not, you're not exempt. And in some ways, people think like, "Oh, you're like sh you're you're basically using sex and like making fun of sex to get at these people." But it was it was also had the other side of it, which was like, "No, you're actually lifting up everybody else to their level. It's not just that you're dragging them down. You're putting people up to be like, we all have these desires. Mm. You're not different than us. Like we're human and you're human. So fuck you for thinking that you can just declare power. You know? Yeah, I th and you still we still see that today. There's there's you know regularly her expression. You know, what do you think your shit doesn't stink? Or just you know that kind of like trying to remind people about the kind of the, the very universal. Um, factors that we all experience. I think that's one thing things I love about studying sex history is it's it's something that you have in common with kings and queens and popes and pharaohs and you know like the little peasants who surfed them on the land and we're all experiencing a desire or sexuality in our own unique way and that is something that binds us all together and 
it that's probably put exactly right. That's why sex is drawn on so much to kind of attack people. And it is a way of saying, just remember where you came from. But also, yeah, to remind people, to make them feel a little bit better about someone maybe putting on airs and graces, as you know, is we're, we're all the same. Yeah, so it's so let me complicate it a little bit. Complicate uh, okay, away. Okay, okay. So like um, all those memes about like Trump making out with Putin, right? So like and whatever. I I think the Russian stuff is kind of bullshit and overemphasized. I've talked about that on the show. You don't have to agree or disagree with that. But I was thinking about how everybody was like, oh, it's homophobia. You're saying they couldn't be gay. They couldn't possibly be gay. Blah blah blah. And I just and and that and that's actually just homophobic. And I thought to myself, well, actually, if we look into the kind of rich history of using sexual imagery to attack people in power, we might be seeing something in addition to it here. Maybe there is a homophobic aspect of it. On the other hand, there's this other thing that's happening, which I'm also interested in. So I want to be kind of like careful about just dismissing that as a tactic as well. So I think that those images, so I think they do come with a healthy dollop of, isn't it funny, it's two guys kissing. But I also think that if you only look at like it like that, it's really, really reductive. Those kind of images, there is a lot more going on. And the reason that they are showing Trump kissing Putin is because it's an extenuation of fears that their relationship is too close. And that is visually represented by making it sexual that's what's going on there it's not primarily attack on the gay community it's not mocking gay men it's making a comment on just how close these two political figures are and suggesting and i guess that there is kind of like sex is so stigmatized and it's bound up in all these things it's it's a way of suggesting that there's something shameful going on there as well so it is bound up with multiple narratives around sex and I think that I, I'd be willing to recognize the homophobia in that but it isn't just naked homophobia isn't it funny there's two guys kissing it because if you showed anyone a picture of two guys kissing that it, it's not not funny right so it, it loses all its kind of power. I, th- I like to think that most of us are in a place now where we could look at that and go yes two guys kissing but because it's Trump and Putin it's playing on cultural anxieties fear political uh, narratives and there is a really really long tradition of satirizing political figures by showing them in bed with other people right yeah I think that that's the part of it that I just wanted to reintroduce is like yes there may be a homophobic aspect of this especially for people who are already homophobic and seeing this or yeah. utilizing it you know like how does this dictate Donald Trump you know like that kind of nonsense but it's like on the other hand like this is also embedded in a long tradition that we've kind of forgotten. And <clears throat> the reason why I want to reclaim it is to say like there's something really useful for us in this if we know how to wield it mm. well and maybe shed some of the like baggage that those particular images might have had, you know? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I, th- I think as well it's sort of important to acknowledge that a lot, there is a long history of this and that it, it is all kind of tangled up with shame, especially when it comes to women political mm. leaders. So there's, I don't think you're going to find a woman who's been in power throughout history who hasn't at some point been called a whore or, you know, written about as if she's come some kind of sexual, nymphomaniac, voracious person. Because that as well is another way of attacking power and there is a very very long history that you mentioned Marie Antoinette and or was it Amber, it was Marie Antoinette 
There was political satire doing the rounds in, in Paris at the time saying that, that she had sex with her son, that she was having sex with the whole army, that she was... And it was all about trying to make her into a morally repugnant uh, figure because if you want to try and shame a woman still, the first place people tend to go to is sex. Even if like they, they call her a slag or a slut with no context whatsoever of even if they are, <laughs> even if you could call them a slut or a slag, it doesn't matter, that's the go-to... Uh, insult and like um, Anne Boleyn was called the great whore Elizabeth I was called uh, the Protestant whore the English whore and, and allegedly she died a virgin Joan of Arc was called the French whore she died a virgin so it's it's about a perceived moral state uh, an actual sexual fact and we're still seeing that in the Putin Trump images the French horn was called the French whore <laughs> <laughs> just out of convenience let's maybe do the the most difficult of all hit me last okay okay here we go all right so i'm I'm gonna get comfy first right okay uh so what is sex and oh god (laughs) (laughs) you asked so but you know like so that's the biological definition is something like a variation on um the union of genetic material from more than one source, which produces Ooh, sexy. new individuals, right? Yeah. Obviously, most sex acts are not procreative. Yeah, right? that's true. So how are we going to try to define it? And and also, we can talk along the way about who defines it and, mm. and, and why. But what the fuck? Like, we, we all take for granted that we know what it is. And yet, as soon as we ask that question and, like, stare into it, mm. it becomes very complicated. I mean, it does, doesn't it? I guess that what is sex for one person in one situation does not necessarily translate as being sex for another person in another situation. I mean, we all feel sexual desire. We know we feel that. We want to touch ourselves. We want to be touched. We want to feel pleasure. We feel that in the same way that we feel hungry and we want to eat. Obviously, there's people in the asexual community who might feel a little bit differently. But we feel that urge we recognize it it's difficult to put into words and i think that that's probably one of the humans have vastly overthought sex in a way that just other creatures do not trouble themselves with at all but totally overthought it and completely underthought it at the yes, same time underthought and overthought <laughs> is we do not live in the moment at all yeah. when it comes to sex so i suppose that recognizing desire knowing what it is knowing what that feeling is and it's a very, very, you know, like we can say, what is sex? And it, I suppose in a kind of a very deconstructionist way, you could even come up with there's absolutely nothing at all if you wanted to. But it is a very, very ruling influence in our lives. You know, like look at the amount of careers that have been <laughs> derailed because somebody did something that they shouldn't have done. They followed that desire. And like, just how often are people making those kind of choices? Is I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to because I really want to. That scratch, that itch, I've got to do it. So it's a powerful guiding thing within us, desire. So I suppose it's whenever we act on that. But then do you have to experience passion? Because there's functional sex, right? Penis and vagina sex, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to enjoy it. Neither does it mean that it's horny, but perhaps one of you's horny? I'm not sure. Well, no, I mean, so, right, we have these, we have all kinds of, like, 
complicating factors here, right? Mm. So like is rape sex, right? Now mm-hmm. some people want to say no, some people want to say yes. It's intercourse. Is, right. I suppose there's other things around it that paint, you know, however you want to define that. Right. So the so the people that say no are um therefore inhering in something about sex like uh, it's consensual or or pleasurable for both parties or what like what is the thing that like stops that or like um is thinking about someone is having a wet dream sex is Mm. masturbating sex is thinking about somebody sexually sex i mean i tend you know one of the huge values of freud but more probably wilhelm reich and some of these and some of the later psychoanalytic thinkers for me is how much they just said like look it's it's all of it you know like (laughs) we we people like to reject that about freud like it's not all sexual but actually like Maybe because there's desire and longing and drive embedded in everything we do. Like maybe it's all. Maybe it's everything. You maybe know, it is. like as the as, you know, I don't know. Maybe well, yeah. I I think that we underestimate just how much of our lives are caught up with this at our peril. In the same way that we have an urge to eat because it keeps us alive, is we have a desire to. I suppose ultimately it's to procreate, but that's not our conscious thought, right? Is it is we derive pleasure from it, which is why we want to to do it. And I think that yeah, it is in absolutely everything, right? It's a pleasure. Um and it's something that's that does bind us together. And I'm kind of wondering is like, you know, does it have to feature erogenous parts of the body? Because that, you know, if I slapped you around the face now, that's I, I won't because you're lovely. But that's an assault. <laughs> If I grabbed your penis, that's a sexual assault. Don't try to convince me you don't slap lovely people. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, like, do you know what yeah. I mean? Like the inclusion is suddenly, if I do this on one part of your body, that's an assault. If I do it on another part, then that, that's, mm. that it has a sexual component just by virtue of the part that I touched. I wonder. That's See, interesting. It's, it's so, it's so... Slippery. It, it's, yeah, and it's such an irritating, I mean, it, almost in a positive sense, it's an irritating question mm. in a way because like this thing that we take for granted like i could equally say like what is pornography right because that's proved completely slippery for people right and the best you know everybody you know uh resorts to that supreme court you know quip i'll know it when i see it right yes but actually it could also equally be you'll you'll see it when you know it because you've already got your definition in place and that's Mm. how you'll identify what porn is and that's the same thing with sex like you'll see it when you know it like you've got your definition of what it is. Like so sometimes I talk to gay guys and I'm like, How many guys have you had sex with? And they're like, Oh, like three. And I'm like, Three, you know, you're you're forty five, like what you know, oh well and then come to you know, it comes to light that they only mean anal sex. Yes. And I'm like, it's called oral sex. Like it's you know, it's, yeah, it's we, not, we, so so is it is that is that and then you can keep going with that, you know. We we have a really like unhealthy obsession with that sex something is it has to be penetrative something has to have gone in somewhere that for us to kind of some like like constitute that as sex and that has really really severe repercussions and somebody that that's absolutely amazing name is joan and she is a sex joan price she's a sex therapist and she works with older older adults and one of the issues that that comes up there again and again and again is that obviously as men get older they can't maintain the erection and it's the, the sort of the mental distress that goes around not being able to quote unquote have sex and like so much of her work is her just reminding people yes you can you're just not sticking your dick in something but that doesn't mean that you're not having sex so we are culturally obsessed with this act of penetration that if that 
doesn't happen, then we haven't had sex. Totally. Which also like leaves people with disabilities in the lurch, yeah. you know, like a lot yeah. of times it's like, oh, they can never have sex. And our understanding saying? of virginity is caught up with that. To- we, we think <laughs> totally. that we know what it means to lose your virginity. But if, if it only qualifies as penile penetration, then we're kind of excluding so much stuff, right? Okay, great. So maybe we can Meister Eckhart this a little bit and say what sex is not okay so sex is not merely penetration no okay so what else isn't it right like yeah i I think i would probably put in i'm not going to be able to definitively define this for you but i'll (laughs) i'll try and add my little bit because we've been talking about it i think consent is i think that plays a part in it because Mm. you know when you said is rape sex is i suppose functionally the same thing happens, but it's not sex, is it? Because it's assault. It's a sexual assault. So consent has to play a part in it somewhere for me. And maybe there isn't just one sex. Maybe there's multiple mm-hmm. narratives. There's so many different types of sex. You know, like the the couple who are trying for a baby and they're on the timer. You know, that they're having that kind of calendar functional sex where they're running home because someone's ovulating. That's very different from a crazy one night stand is very different from, oh, I suppose I'll shag you. You're all like masturbating. So maybe there's multiple, but consent is is really key to me, I think. Yeah, I mean, that it's an interesting proposition. I'm not sure how I feel about saying consent is a is a key to defining it as sex or not, but I don't want to disagree or argue with you Mm. about it. I want to think about that. And I, you know, so there's this like guy that I'm really into this guy, Rudolf Steiner, this mystic philosopher scientist guy and from the late 19th, early 20th century. But when he was talking about truth, he said, you know, there is no truth, but a coincidence of all truths, you know? And so it's not postmodern. He's not saying there is no yeah. truth. He he goes on and that's what I, it's like sex. There is no sex, but a coincidence of all sexes, you know? Mm. So that's one way of maybe saying it. And then another way is, you know, this psychoanalyst, uh, Alinka Zupanchich, she has a book called What is Sex? Um, and it, it honestly, I'm sure you, like me, it's like you get tired of reading sex stuff because you're like, <laughs> oh, this again. You don't get tired of like the infinite variety, but mm. you get tired of like hearing the, the same sort of definitions. And you're like, I've already thought of that. This book is a fucking mind blower. It's, okay. it's great. It's very dense, you know, whatever. But she says, um, basically... Because interestingly, psychoanalysis has nothing to say about sex. It's like, it, it will make everything sexual. But when it comes to talking about sex itself, it's like, what do we do? So she takes that proposition. And she's like, it's the void. It's the nothing from which everything stems, right? Yeah. And for me, that's such a profound definition because I can find sexual, erotic, desiring, longing aspects of everything I do. And they all trace their way back to me being nothing, me not existing and being created by the act of sex. So like mm. my nothingness was preceded by a sexual act. Yeah. So it's like, you know, it's all our, you know, we each have our own big bang, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's fascinating. And I think that you'd have to throw in there as well somewhere that it's about gratifying a sexual desire is a component in there hmm. somewhere. And I say that knowing that as a sex worker, you might not be attracted to the person that you're having sex with. It might not be your sexual desire, but perhaps it's their sexual desire. And if you are performing for a camera, it might not be your desire, but it's someone's desire somewhere, you know? So maybe that's 
because it has to have desire in there somewhere, otherwise it then it just collapses into absolute nothingness. Yeah. I'm confusing myself now. I'm just gonna have to go and hand in my notice. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. <laughs> Well, it's a fucking, it's a fucking intense question that like I try to circle around and try to understand, you know, because I think so much of our problems with sex have to do with what you were bringing up before. Like we tend to privilege the penetrative act, which is of course also has, you know, all kinds of heteronormative like baggage with it as well. We try to privilege that. And so it really can mess us up because we think that the sex act is, and we also think it's only in the act, right? But it's like actually lots of sexual stuff, lots of tension and everything is coming up beforehand. So I would do these movies for this guy, Joe Gage, this Mm. porn director who's been making gay porn since like the seventies. And one of the great things about working with him is that it would be like four hours of the script, like doing the lines and then it would be like, all right, now fuck. And like that would last like an hour, right? So it was the total inverse because his movies, he even has one called Eye Contact. It was all about the tension between the uh. two performers before it happened. And that to me was so much often yeah. watching and being in them more sexual, more yeah. tense. So there's something in that too that's like if we if we dislocate it from the act, if we dislocate it from the penetration, then maybe we can start to understand that sex is something that we have to think about and contend with outside of that, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've had sex that's not been erotic. So I don't think you could say that it was an erotic act. I've had, I I wouldn't even call, I'd call it intercourse. That's what I had. I didn't have sex (laughs) then. Uh But then, you know, the other thing is, is I've had extremely erotic experiences with people that we didn't have penetrative totally. sex, right? So it's it's an extremely slippery thing to try and <laughs> work out what it is. But I suppose, yeah, I'm going to stick with desire in there somewhere. Someone's desire. Mm-hmm. Someone's sexual urge. Mm-hmm. Well, I won't ask you to define desire because then we'll just like... What our well, it's like w- defining what hunger is. Right? Yeah, ex- exactly. We'll just have like a scanner's moment where our heads <laughs> just both explode at the same time because that's like... I mean, it, I I actually would ask you that off the podcast sometime. We can have a conversation about it. But this is a big enough question, I think, in and of itself. The desire part is really... It's really interesting. My friend Jenny... And I, who we used to hang out when I was in college and grad school, and she was a really intense butch lesbian, really only attracted to femme women, Mm. except me. And I was totally attracted to her. And I remember her saying to me one day, she was just like, oh, every time I hang out with you, I just want to fucking punch (laughs) something, you know? And I was like, okay, I get it totally. And so we were desiring and the frustration of desire, but still sex was extremely present even mm. though there was not even you know we'd hug each other oh yeah you can feel it yeah you know and i think that like part of the problem with this is that we're trying to put into words something that you feel and there aren't adequate words to try and do that because it is an animal instinct that we can't quantify we don't even understand our own desires people act on their own desires and don't understand why they've done it like how many times as like someone's libido got them in trouble or they've done something it's like oh why have i fucking done even something like on a really small level like why did i text my ex to i was really horny and i just wanted to get laid you know and it's like it's something that motivates us and pushes us that we don't 
actually understand because we're trying to intellectualize something that is ultimately quite animalistic about ourselves. It's primal and we don't, like that part of our brain can't comprehend it, can't make sense of it. It's not something that can be intellectualized. It's an urge and it's something that will make people do incredibly stupid. That's how powerful it is. I don't think we're actually in control of it most of the time. I can't remember which um, author it was, a Colombian author. He said that everyone has three lives. You have your public life, your private life, and your secret life. Yeah, I remember, you, that's in your book. Yeah, yeah. that's in the, yeah. Yeah, in the introduction. And it's just, and I'm not sure that like, we even really understand our private selves a lot of the time like the urges that we have the things that we want to do like how many, you know like kinks and fetishes we don't fully understand them ourselves we just know we want to do it we like to do it yeah it was so fascinating right because i knew like how is it that before i knew that homosexuality was like you knew a thing you know i you know, and before I could even like come from masturbating, before I, I never imagined anything masturbating. I would just do it. It was just like a physical yeah. thing I would do. And then one day I was in Ocean City, Maryland with my family and my stepbrother got his own condo with his friend Dave. And Dave was in the shower behind that clouded shower door glass. And he called me in and asked me, could you bring me a towel? So I went and I took him a towel and I could see the clouded vaguely shaped you know the vague shape yeah. of his body and i masturbated thinking about him and that moment for years i still every once in a while will dip back into <laughs> that one right but i hadn't even considered imagining no. anybody much less a man in my imagination but my body indicated no. all kinds of things there's a deep knowingness related to yes this. and that's that's the animal instinct that's that's the drive, that's the really primitive amygdala part of the brain that as we've evolved, we have now developed the cerebral cortex and things like that to try and intellectualize it. But we are absolutely driven by impulses that every other animal on the planet has. It's the same thing as like how do lions and how does any animal know how to fuck? Like, how, like no one's sitting down with doing sex ed with lions on the Serengeti. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They just know. They just. Right? Actually, you haven't heard of the work of <laughs> Dr. Sharon. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Dude, like, it's, yeah. it's, we're driven by urges. I don't, I don't think that we fully comprehend. And it shapes us in ways that we can't. You know, like you were saying that your friend gets really angry. You know, like it shapes us in, in ways that we, we can't fathom well so i think part of then like good maybe this is a good place to sort of run aground with the conversation um but i think like yes like our desires seem in a lot of ways unknowable to us and they feel as if like a lot of our thoughts they emerge from nowhere mm. right so what I would love for people to do is this Lacanian thing, you know, don't give way to your desire, don't give up on your desire, whichever way you want to read his tricky trans French translation is like, follow it, you know, follow it. Yeah. And if, if you can only, if, it, if it's something horrendous, you know, or, or bizarre or scary to you, you can follow it in masturbation, you can follow it in your imagination, um, or by writing about it or whatever. But there, there's no point in fighting it. Um, because the way you would dissolve or create your own exit from it, if it is actually indeed threatening or scary to you, is only by, um, it's like the Chinese finger trap. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like you gotta, 
you, you got to go in so you can get out. You, you know? can't repress sexuality. It, do, it doesn't. It doesn't work, and in fact, all it does is distort and create yes. huge problems. And so, like, you know, that's my message to people when it comes to consent. Like mm. all the time, is I'm just like, look, no one ever, ever has a right to violate your boundary without your permission. You have a right to say no, and that is your. That's you. No one gets to violate that. And while you're doing that, also investigate your desires. Ask yourself why your boundaries are where they are. Ask mm. yourself why your desires are what they are. You know, ex- experiment with them in your own ways and ways that feel safe to you because it's also about doing that inner work about encountering safely and sometimes dissolving and sometimes reinforcing the, those contours, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think as well as like people need to know that thoughts and fantasies aren't deeds. People get very upset and troubled by their fantasy life, like it's an intrusive thought. Why is that there? Why do I have this urge? But a thought is not an act, and it's okay to explore that and try and sit with it and not be scared by it, because I think the fear of our sexuality causes a lot of harm as well. Yeah, and it's like if you... (laughs) people feel totally okay with imagining killing the person that's driving too slow in front of them you know like they're just like you motherfucker i'll fucking kill you and like they'll be like oh okay now he 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 turned the corner fine i'm fine you know and then that just goes away but like you have a thought about like fucking your friend Mm. and like or someone peeing on you Mm. or whatever it is and it's just like what's wrong with me yeah what's wrong with me you know and it's like okay like it's fine. Like, you know that that's your imaginative self. Nothing's wrong with any aspect of your imaginative no. self. Yeah. No. It, it, like, for example, like, I don't like to call them rape fantasies because rape by definition is non-consensual. And your fantasy, no matter how crazy it gets, you're always consenting to because it's your fantasy. Let's call them ravishment fantasies. But they carry so much shame for people. Like, how, how can I call myself a feminist when I'm fantasizing about being ravished by a six-foot Viking on a ship? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like like the guilt that goes, where does that come from? And it's like, you don't need to overthink it. It's okay. Mm-hmm. It's just a thought. And thinking about it and encountering the thought is the is one of the things that can allow you to set up a situation where you can engage and enact in that, mm. like in a healthy and and pleasurable way. Yeah. But if you don't think about it at all, like what are your chances of setting up an encounter that could be gratifying around those kinds of fantasies, right? Absolutely. There's this great line in... Unmastered by Catherine Angel. Um, God, it's so good. Where she, so the whole book is about her and her sort of intense encounters with these two lovers who are very dominant, you know. And uh, it's a memoir, but told in these kind of vignettes. And at one point in the book, she says to one of them, Will you tie me up? And he says, No, because you're asking me to now. And she, and that that's it. And so you then you go like 120 more pages or something, you know, and you've kind of forgotten about this little bit. Mm. And then she's in her room and this guy's like, okay, I'm going to tie you up now. And she's like, what? He's like, yep, we're doing it right now. And it's this really shocking moment. But the next thing she says is, I love that he took me at my word. And it's this like really intense. Wow. Um, I, I Like I, it blew my mind when I read it because I was like, there are so many ways to frame the encounters that we want to have happen. There are mm. so many approaches to 
domination and submission to eroticism, to fantasy, all that. There's so many ways in and there's so many pathways of interpretation. And I, I, the more we discuss them, mm. the more becomes available to us, the more we can leave the realm of danger and harm and begin to develop a kind of... Yeah. Yeah. Do you know... I know exactly being... Yes. It's trying to wrestle it away from shame. Mm. And like the kind of guilt that goes with things, you know, is we're all driven by these desires and we don't actually have much control over them. But that's okay. You know, you have to give yourself permission to to sit with that and to make peace with it. It doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It's what, how you act on it, what you do with it. And if we try and deny that part of ourselves and not talk about it and vocalize it, it's not going anywhere. Mm. You know, and yeah, I think that that's, that's the first step out to healthy sexuality, isn't it, is talking. And I just got to say, like, your work is totally vital for that reason. I mean, situating these things which we think are ahistorical, alienated, um, scary, all that, and saying, look... There's actually a rich tapestry of history that you can We've look at. We've always done it. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, it's really, that's an act of real compassion and beauty. And so I'm very honored to be talking with you. And Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for all your work. Yeah. Your efforts. Yeah. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure and a treat talking to you. Thank you. Okay, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>